Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronerds Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronerds. This is episode 72 of the Petronerds Podcast. And like all the other podcasts, which I say, this is a, a truly special treat. This is part one of State of Reality. This is a direct response upon on the State of the Union address by the Biden by Joe Biden. Um, and so this this podcast is a part one of a doubleheader. This is a lecture and presentation that I gave to the Denver Petroleum Club last week on February 9th, 2023, at Oventive's office downtown Denver, Colorado. It was super fun. I had a completely packed audience, a very very engaged audience, um, and some great Q and A afterwards. But this first half, I. I want to keep it a little shorter and digestible, so we're keeping things under 40 minutes. And this first half is on everything on what the State of the Union said, what Joe Biden said, um, some of the ridiculous stuff on us needing oil and gas for just a decade. And then with regards to what's actually going on within oil and gas production, the public-private operators split, split the massive production in natural gas that we're seeing in the U.S. and all the U.S. shale dynamics. So that is part one. We also, I also have a pretty lengthy intro, sort of looking at the whole, you know, U.S. and global economy, what's going on with China, etc. And then part two will drop next week. Will also be around forty minutes, and we'll cover everything from inflation and and housing and you know the U.S. economy and the global economy and what's going on with this sort of energy transition ESG space. So. Fresh, hot off the press, completely up to date. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But with that being said, that was February 9th. That was last Thursday. Today is February 15, 2023. It is Wednesday. We had a slightly higher than expected uh, crude oil inventory report. So we had a little depression on oil prices. We're looking at 78.80 for WTI, 85.55 for Brent, and 2.46 for Henry Hub. Henry Hub still getting absolutely smashed, and 17.16 for Dutch TTF. Now, several things are going on in the global mar- in the in the oil market. Um, if you're watching the stock market and feel like you're getting whiplash and completely whipsawed every day, you are definitely not the only one. That is happening to a lot of us because the stock market doesn't know what it's going to do with the Fed. Um, we had an inflation read that came out yesterday, hotter than expected. Now it had come down only. 0.1% a smidgen from the month prior. And that is a big problem for the Federal Reserve because as I've talked lengthly in podcasts, as I talk about in this podcast, is the Fed has a really hard job ahead of it. And that is that shelter costs and many aspects of inflation, including services, are still going up. So core inflation, when you take out food and energy, is still going up. And food is, is still extremely high. Food inflation in the U.S. is still 10.1%, which is double-digit inflation. That's just massive. Shelter is up. It's at 7.9%. And services are at 7.2%. So so shelter and services have not taken a breather, have not come down. And the problem is that we had very strong jobs data um, um, in the previous month. We have over 500,000 jobs. So the Fed is still fighting inflation. What you felt from the stock market is that they were baking in a Fed pivot. They thought you know things were good and they will slow down. And then I think at the Fed had... Um, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has kept coming out and saying deflation, and it's really sort of jarred the the market. And then we've had, after we had this inflation read yesterday, we had a lot of Fed officials come out and say something different and basically sort of reiterating to the market that they're going to have to raise rates and continue to hold those rates higher. So the stock market has not really reflected this. 
And I think the oil market hasn't quite reflected this either, because what we have now is a situation where we have this ongoing war in Ukraine. We have um, con continuous and growing geopolitical rifts between the U.S. and China. Um, we have high interest rates and we have high oil prices. And we have never really had this this and we have high inflation and so sustained inflation we have all this mixed together and so if you look at inflation in the uk we got that read yesterday as well it was at 10.1 percent when you're at double digit inflation levels folks it is extremely serious so even when people say hey inflation is coming down that's just the rate of the price increases that's coming down inflation is a tax on the consumer on the on people and it's it's incredibly painful because even if you had wages going up commensurate with inflation, which they're not, then you just have a wage price spiral. And that's something the Fed is combating. And that's definitely something I think they're seeing in the UK. So it's very, very problematic. And then something in Australia, they're having serious issues with regards to how their, um, how, how their monetary policy is working because um, the chair of their monetary policy has not been really transparent in what they're doing. And you've seen um, they have variable rate mortgages or adjustable rate mortgages. And so as they're raising rates, those are ratcheting up. Here in the U.S., we're probably not seeing impact on the housing side nearly as much because we had so many mortgages that were locked in at, you know, some under 3%, some around 3%, and a lot of under 4%. And these are 30-year fixed rate mortgages. So we probably have these lags. And like all things with inflation and with the Fed, this is all going to lag. And this is something I talk about within this podcast or with and part two of this podcast as well. Um, so with that being said, I think the last thing I would like to touch on is China. I will be getting into China in depth. I'll be doing a special China episode uh, coming up soon. Um, but right now with regards to China, there's a couple things. One, China is the optimism or was the optimism that was driving and has been driving the optimism for oil prices up and from a demand standpoint. So we've seen that from the, the moment they lifted off the COVID, ripped off the zero COVID band-aid, oil prices have been up. And that's on this pent-up optimism uh, for Chinese demand. If you we pull back what's going on within China, um, geopolitically, this is extremely problematic. Um, there, the balloon saga that's going on, the fact that we did have uh, balloons over the U.S., the first one was definitely not a weather balloon, but let's just pretend it was, even if it was a weather balloon. You can collect quite a bit of data from weather balloons. Um, and the fact that uh, it's been revealed that China has a, a much more significant balloon program um, is, is very revealing in terms of the intel that they're gather gathering, how they're gathering the intel. The balloon that was actually over Montana was gathering communications intel um, and probably targeting communications intel from um, from our military. So there there is significant military ramifications for this. Um, but now they're claiming that we have a bunch of mil that we have a bunch of balloons over them that have flown over Tibet and Xinjiang. Xinjiang is the area with human rights abuses and forced labor and all kinds of atrocities there. Um, so of course they would say that there's no validation to that. Um, but Taiwan has revealed that they also have uh, they've seen a lot they've had weather or balloons, Chinese balloons over them. So lots of serious ramifications for this. I think this is a little bit more serious than the, the market sort of letting on. And it does flow into the sort of optimism. If you're thinking, if you're betting on China right now as this sort of optimistic bet that a lot of folks in the stock market are, I think you have to be very cautious that this is sort of flowing into how people in China are feeling about um, the economy. So yes, people are out from zero COVID, they are spending, they're going out to eat, but there's talk about folks trading down as though they're not buying the highest end stuff and they're trading down a little bit. Um, and the housing market, there's no, there hasn't been a, we haven't solved the housing crisis or housing market issues within China. So that's still weighing on the economy. And so you have a lot of folks just reluctant to buy those big ticket items like a house. Um, so all that's 
you know, very serious and something to be thought about in the backdrop of this. Um, and the inflation picture in the U.S. in in um, in, in the U.K. If China is re- reopening significantly and rebounding, you are going to see inflation um, c- continue to see inflation. And let's say I would just say. We have to remember that oil prices hanging in there being elevated, you know, $85 Brent, that's inflationary. And the only thing that has really come down from an inflationary standpoint from the UK, when you look at break out the data, is energy prices. And the, really the only thing that came down, one of the few items that came down that's helped pulling down inflation in the US is also energy prices. So keep that in mind. And with that, I really hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Um, this is part one, state of reality, my take on the State of the Union from the Biden administration and everything US shale. The next uh, part two will drop next week. Hope you guys enjoy it. Talk to you soon, folks. Bye. I'm going to jump right in. And um, so I was given 45 minutes, and which is just not enough time, if you know me at all, that it's just not enough time to cram everything going on in the world. And I would love to, I did delete some slides, um, not as many as I should have, but I did delete a few of them so we could get through the world in 45 minutes. Um, but I titled this The State of Reality because I did watch the State of the Union. So this is sort of a pun and a response on that. And the only reason for that is that um, you know most people who know what I do, I don't pull punches, um, and I wouldn't pull punches on on previous administrations, but I'm certainly not going to on this one. And the State of the Union was a pretty optimistic, upbeat, uh, resilient. You know, the, the the U.S. economy is doing well, inflation is coming down, um, and that's just not really entirely the case. Um, and certainly with regards to oil and gas, um, it wasn't it was not positive, uh, especially if you're a publicly traded company and you're buying back stock, which um, Almost everybody is. So, major takeaways for this presentation. We are going to start with oil and gas prices and just a quick snapshot and overview of what the heck is going on with oil prices and gas prices. Um, we have not been in this situation in terms of the shale revolution and what we've seen for oil and gas prices sort of ever. So, we are in very unprecedented territory for the global economy, for geopolitics, for this ongoing war, and obviously for oil and gas, and especially for the uniqueness of what's going on within the shale patch. The state of the union versus the state of reality, we will touch on that, as I just mentioned. Um, We're going to talk about the health of the U.S. and global economy, or sort of the lack of the health of the U.S. and global economy, um, and really the split economy. So if you're paying attention to the news at all or the stock market or anything, you're hearing kind of two stories. And that's that, one, we have you know, bang up job growth, better than expected. So nobody on the on the service sector, nobody sort of on the bottom half of the economy is letting people go because they're quite worried they can't get them if they do let them go and they still can't hire them. And then you're hearing about all these layoffs. Disney just laid off over 7,000 people. You've got tech layoffs going crazy. So from banks to media to tech, you are seeing massive layoffs. And I call that the split economy because these are higher end corporate jobs. So you're seeing layoffs there. And the next shoe to drop on that is construction. Nobody wants to talk about that because that's a little scary. Um, but all this is happening in the midst of pretty sticky inflation. Um, and that's where you know Jamie Dimon and his comments on inflation, I mean, the market is sort of all over the map right now because one day everybody thinks the Fed is being dovish. Uh, Jerome Powell did sound a little dovish. He talked about, he mentioned deflation about 12 times in his talk. He mentioned it again this week. Um, the problem is, is that uh, he said that a lot. And then all these Fed guys had to come back out and say, hey, um, wait a second, we're probably going to have to raise rates, keep raising rates about 5% and hold it there. And then you had Jamie Dimon basically say the same thing. He's been saying this. I like him for a number of reasons, but I'll get into that later. Um, War, we are a year on in this war. And I can tell you that um, working with governments, working with clients, working with businesses, 
there was hardly anyone who really believed that Putin was going to go to war with Ukraine. Um, he did go to war with Ukraine, and most people wanted to optimistically believe that somehow this war would have ended by now. It certainly hasn't. And when you're a year on in a war um, and Russia's looking to you know, intensify their offensive campaigns, we have to really sort of start looking at what's the implications of that. Obviously, we have huge implications um, right now from an inflationary standpoint, from an energy standpoint, from ammunitions to arms sales, but also geopolitically, it's, it's really meaningful of sort of what are the next steps and, and what does this mean? Um, what does this mean for oil prices is, is a very, very unique environment because it is maintaining an elevation of oil prices that uh, we haven't seen in a really long time. So we used to sort of have geopolitical risk premiums to oil prices. Now we actually have the geopolitical risk. It's, it's there. And until this war ends, it's going to be there. So it's sort of this, this weird thing where you have the economy not doing so great and shouldn't be super supported. Uh, oil should not be super supported from a demand side, but it is supported from a supply side because of the risk with this war. Um, and then I'll sort of smash all this stuff together and talk about energy, geopolitics, power, like actual power, be a geopolitical power, but also power from power production. The ability to actually turn your lights on in your country is a form of power. It comes back to national security, comes back to economic security, and it's hugely important. And I am going to talk about green policies and what I call real ESG. Um, I am not a fan of renewables for a number of different reasons, and I will clarify what those renewables are, um, and I will clarify why, why that is. And I do think it's something that needs to be elevated and understood and appreciated, and it's very okay if you disagree with me. I'm happy to take hard questions and happy to have those conversations, but it's something that more folks need to be talking about. Chris Wright, I believe, will be on this other side of, of the building soon or later today. He is on a massive offensive campaign, and everyone in this industry, including public companies, need to get on board with that offensive campaign, because there is nobody in this business, nobody outside of this business that's going to defend this industry, um, so we have to do it ourselves. Um, so BP, Chevron, Exxon, the reason I point this out is that if you're following the earnings side, and this is really serious because when, when the President of the United States is talking directly about oil companies and corporate buybacks, you know, you're hearing this theme, you know, BP is talking about, you know, performing while transforming. Um, that's nice little catchphrases. They're getting a lot of flack uh, because they're green and not green from going green because they're making money. And so they're getting flack because they're making money. They're getting flack because um, they're not going green fast enough. And I will get into where, where they see the net zero and where the International Energy Agency sees the net zero. It's a little bit different um, by the 2030 trajectory. Neither of those are going to happen. They're incorrect. Um, but at least they, we, can, we can talk about that. Exxon mentioned IEA's uh, net zero report within their earnings call. Um, since 2021, May of 2021, when we had all the board meeting debacles and everything went crazy um, for Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, um, we've had some tempering of that, a little bit of rolling back, and that has been sort of in response to a lot of the stuff, a lot of the White House letters that have been going to these companies, and these companies saying, hey, you know, we are producing oil and gas, here's what we're doing. The reality is, is though, they are doing a lot of share buybacks. Um, they haven't increased, you know, they're not putting you know, a ton of CapEx into the ground. And Exxon has increased their uh, lower carbon or lower emissions stuff by about $2 billion. They actually increased, so it's a $17 billion CapEx from 2022 to 2025. So it's a decent chunk of change. Um, my point with this is that if you give a mouse a cookie, they want a glass of milk. And so all these companies are struggling with, hey, we're all good with scope one and scope two emissions, but not scope three. Well, that's pretty tricky because the whole agenda of everyone else is they want scope three emissions. Scope three emissions are 
end-user emissions. They will highly, they, it doesn't work. It would massively distort um, how we're buying and selling crude oil. It would massively distort markets, and it would be a mess. Um, but that's the problem. So all these companies say this stuff, and they say, but hey, wait on scope three. Um, and then you can't have your cake and eat it too. So you cannot be talking about IA net zero emissions and everybody jumping on the net zero bandwagon and then not... Must, we must not understand what net zero is, because net zero, according to the IEA and BP, is no more crude oil um, very, very soon. And it's not saying, hey, rah, rah, crude oil, I'm in, I'm in the business. It's that it isn't realistic and it's not happening. And so we, we have to understand this stuff because this has massive, massive implications, not just for US policymakers, but for global policymakers, for geopolitics, for power, um, and for security overall. OK, so that's, that was my intro. So we sort of recapped everything. Uh, so what is a PetroNerd? That would be me on, a, on some tank batteries a long time ago. That my dad was pumping these wells. Um, this is a picture I used to put up with ESG. This is the Hayden power plant. Um, as you're going into when I go home and I'm driving home, I always take a picture of this. These are the power plants that are being shut down. I am really, really serious about this, too. I used to not be nearly as outspoken about um, you know, I don't call, uh, I do not call it fossil fuels, and I don't think people should. These are hydrocarbons, these are traditional fuels, this is crude oil, this is natural gas, this is coal. And I think it, it is really, really serious when my energy bill right now is $400 a month for my utility bill. Now, I know I felt it, I know most of the people in this room felt it, and I know most of the people who are living paycheck to paycheck are damn well feeling that. So it is really, really serious when we're talking about utility prices and we're talking about you know, how, much how much we're actually spending on um, what Excel is doing, how much, how much renewables we have in the grid, and what this all means. And when you have the governor of this state saying that natural gas is unreliable three times within his presentation, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago, that's a real big problem. So he said uh, natural gas was unreliable three times, and then he said that coal was the most expensive form of energy. Those are actually not true, um, but those are things that we know have to be discussed and talked about. Now, natural gas prices can fluctuate, but in terms of reliability, we're going to debunk that one pretty hard within this presentation. Um, so crude oil prices, just the reason I point this out here is because I, I obviously we've had pretty decent volatility. We have come off um, pretty our highs over the course of the beginning of this year. This year and the end of last year, we've lost a lot of gains that were made over the course of 2022. Um, really, a lot of that was, was fears on demand. Now, what has brought prices back? Well, uh, it's the positive, you know, everybody thinking that China's reopening and everybody got excited, and so we had this, this boon to prices. And something you'll notice, and I always try to point this out, is, and this is quite serious, is that the contract volume for WTI is, is not good. Um, it's, it's really actually quite bad. And so when those are down and it keeps going down, you do see exacerbated swings in oil prices. Um, we don't see that quite as much for, Bre for Brent, but we have seen that over the course of a year. Um, so it's just something to really important to pay attention to. So I would say most recently, I mean, your, your back year oil prices are driven on everybody betting hard on China. And we do have to be very careful about that. Um, so this is Chinese crude oil imports, and you can see, you know, China imports between 10 and 12 million barrels a day of crude oil. So the bet right now is everybody is super, super bullish on China. Um, and the caveat to this is all the fear and all the concerns and all the worries everyone had about China from an economic standpoint, from a political standpoint. Now we have balloons and, you know, not the balloons that you like for parties and everything. And we can certainly talk about that in Q&A if you want. Um, it's not, nothing has changed from the 
the Chinese government standpoint, other than they ripped the Band-Aid off of zero COVID and their opening. They sort of had to. This is very characteristic of Chinese policymaking. It is pretty messy, um, and it just sort of you rip the Band-Aid off and you go with it. So be careful with this. Not saying that, that it's not supportive of crude oil prices, and it, it is, but to the extent to which their economy has a lot of fragilities, and the global economy has a lot of fragilities as well. Um, natural gas prices. Not good. Um, so absolutely being pummeled. And you know, I'm supportive of, of lower natural gas prices for, for the health of the consumer. And $10 an MCF is very damning to the US economy and damning to the US consumer and, and the global consumer. But these prices are, are that, that swing is really hard to take. Um, now, the shock, I mean, contracted volumes are definitely something to watch. Um, that's Dutch TTF here on the left. And you can see that's really come off as well. Now, weather has been you know, the single biggest driver, I think, of, of very advantageous for, um, for Europe. They had a good, it's been a good winter. Now, if we have some you know, late spring where we get a cold snap in the late spring, that's going to be problematic. So weather has a lot to do with, it, with this storage and obviously storage comes back to production so we're up on this high end of the storage that that's your five-year averages on either side and so when you near the upper end you hit prices um, I'm gonna come back to net gas in a second Yeah, so the trade of volumes for crude oil are just, and everything are just down from partly from the whole let's divest out of oil and gas. Um, a lot of folks got burned in the past several years. Um, you had you, COVID was crazy. You had you know negative oil prices. Lots and lots of folks are traders getting burned. Now you have algorithmic trading. It just entities and banks and folks and getting out of the space. So a lot of that. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about the State of the Union. If you if you didn't watch it, um, I wrote this down. It's a little messy because I had to I had to listen. I, I tried to put this into words from exactly what Joe Biden said, um, and he went off script, and so that it got a little garbled. Um, but I'm going to read it because this is this is important. Um, have you noticed? Big oil just reported its profits. And there's applause and talk and all that stuff, and it's funny. Um, record profits. Last year, they made $200 billion in the midst of a global energy crisis. Apparently, this is a great, I feel like I'm impersonating Joe Biden perfectly. Um, I think it's outrageous. Why? They invested too little of that profit to increase domestic production. Now, somebody who is definitely going to like make fun of me for this and say this is a super raw, raw oil and gas moment because I'm doing this. But this is, this is almost incredible. Um, and when. When I talk to a couple of them, a couple of oil companies, quote, they say, we're afraid you are going to shut down all the oil wells and all the oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need all that oil for at least another decade. And then there's like interruption and people talking and he's getting you know, booed by the other side. Um, and he says, oh, and beyond that, we're going to need it. Um, then he just says, production. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't supposed to be funny, but that's, how, that's actually how it happened. OK, so if they had, in fact, invested in the production to keep gas prices down, instead, gas, we don't know if it's that done, natural gas, gasoline, it's very confusing here, um, they used record profits to buy back their own stock, rewarding their CEOs and shareholders. Corporations ought to do the right thing. That's why I propose we quadruple the tax on corporate buybacks and encourage long-term investments. They'll still make considerable profit. Um, that's a very, very big implications for that. Now, will that happen? We have a split Congress. That's harder. But quadrupling your, I mean, personally, and for a long time, I've always been critical of corporate buybacks in terms of, is this the best way to spend all of your money? Not necessarily. At $75 to $100 oil, you should, 
we should be torn be putting the drill bit back in the ground and corporate buybacks. And the amount of corporate buybacks that we see are definitely to, it, it, it's what the industry sees is what we should be doing. Well, you know, I remember a time when folks uh, in this, in this uh, city, um, there were companies that were doing corporate buybacks and they were using debt to, to buy back those shares. That was not a necessarily a smart move. So we do have to be careful of just jumping on the bandwagon and doing all these corporate buybacks. Um, and, and I'm not you know, defending necessarily the stance of, of the administration, but um, we should be putting the drill bit back in the ground. And I think it's really tricky from these, from a, a, if you're a public company, you are looking at this and saying, okay, well, I gotta be in a long only portfolio. I gotta hit all these ESG metrics. I gotta make everybody like me. And look, your share price is good because oil prices are good. And the reality is that when, it, when and if prices go down, um, say they go in the 60s or 50s, that love for oil and gas is gonna go away. Um, because the love for oil and gas right now is because oil and gas is making money. You make money by producing oil and gas. So there does have to be a thinking between a five and 10 year trajectory of sort of where we're at. And the trickiness is that when you have the president saying we're gonna have crude oil, for, we're gonna need it for another decade, you've got everybody in this limbo land of, well, we get a decade. Nobody can invest on a decade. Um, when I work with clients, like there's a, most companies are, are living quarter to quarter, right? You're just living for that quarter. It's not a good way to do business. Um, I know it's hard when you're public, but that's not how your CEOs are thinking. That's not how strategy is thinking. That's literally not how Jamie Dimon is functioning. That's not how big businesses that make a lot of money, they are working on a five to 10 year outlook, if not longer. And governments are thinking 30 years out. So you can't function in a 10 year horizon. You need to be thinking 30 years out. And trust me, everybody outside of the US who wants to take advantage of the US is leaning in on this. Because if you are looking at this and saying, well, the US and, and the West and Europe are divesting out of oil and gas, they're losing their oil and gas champions. Um, and the people who are gonna win are the folks that need energy like China um, and don't have it. And places like OPEC, whose their share is gonna, of, of production is gonna rise massively as we are all declining. So the implications for this are really, really serious and very significant. And they do all come back to like the little, little stuff uh, that people don't think matter. And lastly, he says, the climate crisis is not, um, does not care if you're in a red or blue state. It is an existential threat. Existential is a very intense term that's used intentionally, that's used on purpose, that's used so that it, they can use it from a regulatory standpoint to basically say this is, like, this is like a terrorist attack and therefore we have regulatory powers to enact this. Very serious, it's not an existential threat. I know Chris Wright will get it. Um, he's been all over that, so just follow him. Um, we're still going to need oil and gas for a while, but guess what, we have more work to do. So it's really tricky when it's, are we gonna need it for a while? How long is that while? Um, and you know the problem is that on the first day when you suspend all permits on federal land um, illegally, um, that sets a wrong precedent on your first day in office. You take away the actual permits from oil and gas companies. So I do get really bothered when I go to DC and I go around the world and people say, oh, well, look what the president's saying now. It's not what you say, it's what you do. And this is what was done on the very first day. And the industry should have been a lot louder, a lot louder about pushing back against this and instead sort of caving into all the shareholder pressure and rah-rahing net zero. Um, revoking Keystone XL permit, big, big deal. The energy, um, the Department of Energy has actually come out and, and put out a paper very quietly about how, what Keystone XL would have done for the economy, um, basically sort of admitting it wasn't the right decision. We could still approve that anytime. It's basically built, we need to finish it. Um, and that would have had a significant impact on oil and uh, on oil prices and refined product prices. Uh, day seven, pausing all new oil and gas leases on public land to and emphasizing this decarbonization of the grid. 
Um, that pausing on federal land has, has been a big deal where everybody's talking about ConocoPhillips project, the Willow project in Alaska. You know, I, you hear company, I, Bob McNally is a friend of mine with Rapidan. Uh, he was on TV recently talking about, hey, you know, this administration is going for an all of the above strategy. No, they are not. This is not the Obama administration. This is not an all of the above strategy. That Willow project, if it gets approved, it's going to be significantly de you know, deregulated or not deregulated. It's going to be significantly downplayed and they're going to reduce the permits and everything. And this is, you, you speak with actions, not with words when it comes to this point in geopolitics and with energy security. Um, and day 30 was rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. That's really, really serious because that is all your, your Paris Climate Accords are all the stuff that we're tagging on to the net zero emissions and everything we're doing, we are doing to comply. It's, you're not legally bound to this, but it's, um, it's a pretty big deal because this was sort of what gave the wind behind everyone's sales and in terms of the investment community, in terms of banks, in terms of everyone on ESG, and certainly in terms of public oil and gas companies. Permit approvals have been down and continue to be down. This is the first and only administration that I know of that if you have a federal permit and it has expired and you want to get reapproval for that, this administration will not give you reapproval for that. So that is not an all of the above, above administration. That is an administration that is still against oil and gas production and um, as a domestic oil and gas production. Um, so. Red is, is pre-administration, this administration that's Trump. Blue is Biden, and you can see those are federal permit approvals which continue to go down. So they're approving them, they're just not nearly what we were doing before. Um, the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, also used as a massive uh, piggy bank and used to sort of curb oil prices, did not work as effectively as planned. Now, it, it certainly dented crude oil prices to a degree, but could have been much, I mean, approving Keystone XL, doing this and a few other things, maybe propping up refineries would have been a big deal. Um, but we are sort of setting ourselves up for definitely, you know, the geopolitical situation where I talked about that geopolitical risk premium and this ongoing war. This is massively problematic if we do not start filling up this reserve. We need to be filling this up. Um, and this is where you know, oil companies need to start talking to the administration about, yes, we will put the drill back in the ground and we need to fill up the SBR and things like this because this will come back to bite us in the future. We are down to you know, 20 days or so of demand or less than 20 days of demand for, for the US. Production, we just sort of hit a two month you know, period where we're, we're basically at 12.4 million barrels a day. We had this massive clawback from, um, from where we were from our COVID drop down and our shut-ins, and we've been clawing back this production. I put this here, I say it a lot, but I, it's imp really important to remember, look at where oil prices were and where production is. Um, and so pr prices were not necessarily super high when we ratcheted up, and the average crude oil prices always across the world over the last 20 years and especially the last 10 years have tended to be lower and production has been more resilient. So keep that in the back of your pocket of 2000 to 2007, we averaged $44 barrel. 2008 to, 20, uh, 2008 to 2013, we averaged $88 a barrel. And 2014 to 2021, $58 a barrel in total. Um, that was also extremely beneficial for the US consumer and the global consumer and the global economy. So lower crude oil prices, while they're not necessarily great for our industry, um, they are really, really good for the health of the economy, and the health of the economy does create stability for demand in crude oil. So it, it all interacts um, very tightly together. 
So we are exporting over 10 million barrels a day, or about 10 million barrels a day, of crude oil, refined product, and natural gas liquids. That natural gas liquids includes like propane, uh, over a million barrels a day of propane. Um, so the point of this is we are, a, we are the powerhouse of the world for oil and gas. This is in line with what Saudi Arabia exports on a very, very good day. We're exporting 4 million barrels a day of crude oil and um, massive amounts of a million barrels a day of, of gasoline, over a million barrels a day of diesel, over a million barrels a day of propane. So huge numbers and stuff, again, you didn't hear in that State of the Union that we produce more oil and natural gas than anyone in the world by far and what that means for the global economy, what that means for us. That's huge. Um, and that, is, that should be part of the State of the Union. So oil rigs, gas rigs, and gas prices. I know the rig count it does not always seem super relevant. Um, but it is contextually when we just think about this of that's gas rigs in yellow. That's gas prices in green. Um, and the reason I put that there is because, and this is oil rigs in, in black. So we have definitely you know, plateaued a little bit in oil rigs recently. I think we're going to hang there. I don't think we need too many more rigs anyway to add production. We've done very well with what we've had. But if you just look back in time to 2008, you can see where we've, you know, we, we dropped our gas rigs and we increased the oil rigs, right? So we really have to be thinking about and thinking about the trajectory of gas prices, how they were so low and basically flat. And then we had this big uptick in 2022. That was pretty game changing. 2022 was a very unique time for this business because as you all know, gas was sexy and it's exciting and all of a sudden every reservoir engineer and every engineer and all of you are like getting to look at gas and, and it's fun um, and you can actually target it. And if you have takeaway capacity, it's wonderful. Now, this is where I have a bit of a hard time when people, and this is, it's very true. There's a number of folks that are saying, well, how did, you know, we missed that natural gas was gonna do so great and natural gas prices were gonna come down. Um, this is natural gas production. It never has really taken, it never really comes off, right? It, it moves around, but we're producing 122 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas in the US. That is double that of Russia. That is out of a 400 BCF a day global market. So 400 billion cubic feet per day of demand, 400 billion cubic feet per day of supply. And we produce 122 of that. If you were to think of one thing to undercut the US in some way, it would probably be natural gas because we dominate it. And this is largely from associated gas production because as you saw, those rigs, the rig count for natural gas is low. Um, and as oil prices are high, you know, we're obviously attracting more investment. Um, so we get this associated gas. And so it's a very unique dynamic where oil prices are high, and so we're incentivized to produce oil. We get this associated gas. Gas prices were high. We're incentivized to produce gas. And now we're at this 122 BCF a day level. So even if we drop off gas rigs, I really don't think we're going to, we would have to see a, a, drop, a, a big drop in oil prices to actually see that, that gas production come off as well. But there is a lot of talk and concern on dr dropping these gas rigs. That's just oil production broken out again. Um, I do think it's really important to look at the states that are dominating, Texas, New Mexico. Um, federal offshore has, has flatlined, um, and North Dakota is sort of flat as well. Um, but just really, really impressive, especially when you're going back in history and you're staring at these charts and seeing out where we were in 2004. Um, we are in just a completely different space. Um, and if we go back to those levels, we change the game massively globally. Um, when we think about ladder lengths and the rig count, it is really, really important for what we've done over the course of the last few years from efficiencies. Um, and just 
really doing more with less. Um, the lateral length in the Permian on average is 10,500 feet and continuing to incrementally rise. Midland and Delaware, you can see it broken out. We're 11, 000, over 11,000 feet in the Midland. Delaware is a little behind that um, and flatlining a little bit. But those have been some pretty substantial gains. Um, and those, uh, and you guys know this well because you guys actually do it and you're the engineers. But I think the ability to, the doing more with less, have we tapped all our efficiencies? I, People always think we, we have and then we push a little harder. Um, and this sort of pushing the envelope of longer laterals and completing those longer laterals and getting more out of those longer laterals is a pretty big deal. And it's really that knowledge of the rock that I think people have to pay attention to. Incremental knowledge of that little bit of that well bore and incrementally getting a little bit more out all adds up and all spirals up to this added production. Um, public and private rigs, lower 48. The private is in purple, the public is in orange. This is, um, I'm gonna come back to this ESG, investor pressure, what's going on with public companies. Um, you can see public companies are really nicely cored up, they're concentrated. Um, the purple companies and the private companies are everywhere, they're scattered around, they're taking risks, you know, they, they push the envelope. Um, that's not bad, that's just, that's telling us that, hey, and over the course of all of 2021, 2022, this is what we saw, is that these private companies pushing the envelope. And that's also very, very different from what the world told you was gonna happen. If you were following Wall Street or you are following private equity, they all said this was, not, this was gonna end, this was gonna die, the privates won't make it. Um, and when prices go up, private companies respond, private capital responds, and not just private equity, I'm talking like private, private money responds, and this is what happened. Um, it also sort of debunks the whole tier one to tier four acreage. I think it really pushes that. We have to start rethinking what's valid um, at certain price decks. And obviously, you know, we used to talk about spacing at certain price decks, we don't talk about that anymore. So there's a lot of stuff that's sort of up for grabs when you're sustainably over a $75 price figure. Um, if we look at the the rig count, we can see we're basically at hanging for these private rigs. You have more private rigs drilling than you have public still, but we have come off a little bit in the US. And then you can see the public rigs are, are continuing to ratchet up, but it has taken them a while and they're nowhere near they were sort of at those 2018 highs. In the Permian, we just saw this split in sort of September. And this is a response to prices where now you have more public rigs than you have private, but you were sort of neck and neck before. And you have more private rigs though running than you did at the high, in 2018 in the Permian. That is something nobody, nobody thought would happen. Um, and that is why this industry, you have to pay attention to this stuff really, really close and get down on a really granular level on individual operator behavior because it's what moves the needle. Um, and it's what people miss as they get, you know, for if they, in New York and they're analyzing this, if they're in Europe or if they're in Saudi Arabia, they miss all this stuff. Um, this is not a one-to-one -one ratio, but you can just see this is Permian public and private recount uh, with oil prices. And you can see that obviously the privates do respond to oil prices. And we can see the split and the slowness of sort of the publics to come back regardless of price. Um, this is just the ducks, so private and public. Again, just look at the map of these are drilled but uncompleted wells. We don't have to spend time arguing what a duck is. Um, these are wells that are being ho have been poked into the ground. Somebody has drilled this. Um, that it is waiting on completion or some stage of completion, um, but the intent is there, right? A, a, drill, a drill bit has come in and has poked this hole in the ground and drilled it, and you can see just, this, just the where the privates have drilled and how far and around that is, is, is extensive and it's massive, and it tells us a lot of the, the ability for these uh, privates to take on risk, um, and also the environment that we're in is that the risk is not, they're not just taking on risk because it's willy-nilly and they don't need a return. They absolutely need a return, um, and they are getting returns. They're just not getting the same returns that public companies are at, which have much more stringent returns now with everything going on from an investor pressure standpoint. 
So um, I call this a money chart um, because I've combined a bunch of things into one slide. Uh, so this is your monthly, this is your completions and your recount. That's public and private. This is all of the US, all well completions. So a little bit more valid than rig count, a little bit more valid than the frac side because these are the wells being drilled and completed and brought onto production. And that's private in purple, public in orange. Those are stacked up wells. And then the rig count, corresponding rig count to each is those purple and orange lines and WTI. And um, so you can see we have not come back in the US to our completion levels that we were at. We have not brought, brought on as many wells as we were bringing on pre-COVID. We just have not come back to those highs. Um, if we break this out, and this is really where you can see this ESG and this investor pressure. Um, and I say this a lot because investor pressure, there's a lot going on with investor pressure. That came from, obviously, in the, sh in the shale patch, we did burn a lot of money. Um, lots of money was spent poorly. And then you've had you know, a, a series of everything happening from COVID and the drop in oil prices and negative oil prices to all this investor pressure, all this ESG push. And that has really materialized in public companies just being um, slower to, uh, on the upstart to actually bring bring rigs back online, bring wells back online, and just slower in general, and not adding a lot to production. And so you can see that split of the privates just were off to the races, responding to oil prices, and the publics were slower. And that is meaningful. Um, it is meaningful in the context of when we have an energy crisis and we do have very high prices. Um, that is truly, an, uh, the ESG crisis is when we cannot, when people have, uh, cannot pay their utility bills. So we do have to really rethink this. And I know as a public company, everyone has to, you're, you're being stewards of your capital and you don't just want to add production and, and drop prices, but um, <laughs> putting billions into CapEx and lower carbon also is lower BTU, is lower energy. Um, and those are considerations that have to be made. That's your horizontal well completions for the Permian. So we are back to where we were. We're even a little bit, uh, in some months, we've been a little bit higher. Um, that breakout is the public, the privates have just crushed it. They've just added wells left, right, and center, absolutely responding to prices. Um, publics are coming back, not quite where they were, but you can see the privates have offset that. And you know, this, this talk about production is, I always hear from, and whether it's earnings calls or whether it's operators or analysts talk about, well, you know, who's holding the production? And by and large, certainly big public companies are moving the needle on production. But when you have that many privates and that many holes being poked in the ground, they have added a lot to production. So just to put in perspective, that is the Permian is producing 21 BCF a day of nat gas. Again, this is the whole nat gas story of this massive production. That's 21 BCF a day of associated gas production, essentially, and over 5 million barrels a day of oil. Um, it's a lot. And it's, it's a big, big story. New Mexico is producing flatlining a little bit over the course of this month. We'll see how far those gains in adding production can go. But one state, two tiny counties, Lee and Eddy County, are smashing out 1.7 million barrels a day of production in two counties alone. That's a serious, serious story that's not well told. Um, incredible rock and really needs to be told against the story of Colorado, California, and Alaska declining every month. Um, in production. And so that is a big deal in terms of uh, could we be producing more? Absolutely. Um, and when you're open for business, that's what happens. And when you have a regulatory environment and a governor who says natural gas is unreliable, that is what happens. Um, oil and gas productivity. Um, it's impressive to look at this chart. This is normalized productivity for all of the shale plays, all the major shale plays, Permian, Rockies, Anadarko, uh, Eagleford. Throw them all together. Analyze, like, and normalize the curve. This is your oil curve. Um, and so you see 2022, it's basically smashed up right in line with these other years. The fact that it didn't massively decline is impressive. 
Um, but the gas side is the real story of, look how high that gas is. We're, we're at highs for our normalized gas curve in our oil plays, which means everybody was targeting or incentivized to target natural gas last year, which is also why we see prices where they're at today. Um, normalized productivity for the Permian, that's, just, that's Delaware on top, that's Midland on bottom. I am not saying, we're not seeing decreasing marginal returns. Yes, some of the wells are underperforming in years past, but not massively. That makes total sense to me if you're stepping out a little bit on acreage, if you got a lot of private operators really stepping out, and if you're pushing those lateral lengths as far as you can, um, that's a pretty good story um, that's not being well told. The Rockies, the reason we have not seen activity come back in the Rockies is because the Rockies was dominated by public companies, and public companies didn't come back. So this is the story of the Rockies, of your publics and privates, and um, you can see the breakout, is the privates have come back and the publics have not, and that's, that's the reality. That does have a positive knock-on effect in terms of pipeline capacity and the ability for this crude to flow, and we certainly see this in differ differentials.